Chapter 3. Koilos. Misha was correct. There were drawings in the sand of the deeper desert to the west of their encampment. There were large figures made from raised mounds of dry earth, darker than their surroundings, and best visible from the air. Tokasia conducted earlier expeditions in that very area before settling on the present site of the encampment, but never guessed their true nature. The drawings were an odd mixture. There were humanoid figures of every type, any one of which might be a representation of a Thran. There were also all manner of animals, deer, elephants, and camels. There was an odd collection of geometric symbols, curves, spirals, and sharp angles that crossed and recrossed the gathered figures, bisecting some, leaving others untouched. Doodles, thought Tokasia, created by a race of desert titans. The drawings were of Thran origins, of course, as Misha had guessed. They were arrayed around a single location, a large mound. This proved to be a rich field of artifacts, including an almost complete Suchi skeleton that finally fulfilled Tokasia's dream of putting together one of the enigmatic beasts. There was also the remains of several ornithopters, yet the discovery of the Suchi and the ornithopters was secondary to the rich trove of power crystals found in the central mound. Many of the crystals were cracked or expired, but they were among the dross more than enough operational remains, vibrant, lambent jewels that glittered with a rainbow of sparks and patterns within. There were more than enough jewels for Tokasia to keep for her own work, with sufficient surplus to send to other scholars and various noble supporters in the capital of Penrigan. This, in turn, supplied enough interest from the nobility to allow her to open a second permanent camp at the site of Mishra's find. The discovery of the drawings in the deserts were made possible by airborne observation. The same method revealed similar drawing fields, though none as large or intact as the first. An arc of them extended into the desert in a broad sweep outward from the Kerr ridges. Some of the drawings had figures of recognizable races, while others did not. All contained a stylized pattern of curves and zigzag lines around a central mound containing wrecked artifacts and power stones. During the next two years, researchers located almost 20 such mounds. Still, the big questions eluded Tokasia and the brothers. No one found any skeletal remains of the Thran themselves, nor any art. The archaeologists discovered nothing of their language, more than a few fragments that seemed little more than labels, and an obvious set of numerical symbols. At dinner, the scholar, the two brothers, and some of the elder students were accustomed to discuss the Thran's possible nature. They had to be human, said Urza, in the course of one such talk. Everything we have found is capable of being used by human-sized individuals. They were probably a successful branch of the early Falaji people that dominated the others through their advanced science. The surviving Falaji of today turned their enterprising brethren into godlike beings. The fact that they were comfortable with their tools doesn't mean anything, disagreed Mitra. Dwarves or elves or orcs could have used these items, or minotaurs. Minotaurs are too big, said Urza. Their hands would be too large to hold most of the devices. Minotaurs could be in charge, with humans doing the labor, Misha returned. Tokasia noted that the younger brother refused to concede to his sibling even the smallest point. Imagine, he continued, Minotaurs ruling the Thran nation and humans as an underclass. Like among the orcs, the big ones are on top and the little goblins doing all the hard work. We found no Minotaur remains, brother, said Urza coolly. We have found no human remains either, brother. Misha shot back raising his glass of Nabiz in a mock toast to his own logic. Tokasi leaned back in her chair, recently arrived from the capital, a comfortable cushioned affair, and let the two brothers spar. This was an old argument, revisited at least once a month. It always ended the same way, in an admission that they did not know enough. That confession always seemed to frustrate both of the young men. Both of the brothers had changed over the years of discovery. Urza was leaner than ever, though he finally had a good set of shoulders. His face was smooth, and he prided himself on not losing his temper 
as he had when he was a child. Misha, for his part, was as impulsive as he had been the day of that first flight. His most obvious change was a sparse, dark beard that framed his smiling mouth. The older students at the table watched the argument as well, but did not get involved. Erzin and Misha were older than most of the students now, and in another few years they would be thought of as adults in their own right. The noble students had learned early that voicing a contrary opinion when the two were fighting like this was a sure way to turn both young men against their interloper. Tokasio was proud of the boys and their achievements, and in turn they were devoted to her. But again and again, they returned to the single argument and could not move beyond it. They still had not learned the identity of the Thran. As the young men's voices rose higher, Tokasio leaned forward, hoping to turn the brothers to a new tack. Why haven't we? she interrupted. Both young men blinked at the older scholar as she repeated. Why haven't we found any remains, human or otherwise? Scavengers, said Mishra immediately. Urza made a rude noise. Then why haven't we found any scavenger remains? He asked scornfully. There are no dead creatures of any type among the wreckage. There should be some, even by accident. And you have a theory, brother? Asked Mishra. Plague, said Urza calmly. Something swept through that not only killed the Thran, but destroyed the remains as well. That also explains why the wreckage is so widely scattered. Misha shook his head. Not plague. War. Plague wouldn't explain why there is no art. War would. The victors burn what could burn. Paintings. Books. Bodies. Then they destroyed the rest. We have found aspects among the various sites. Those are the results of manufacture, not battle, observed Urza. And if you're right, what became of the victors? They became the scavengers, retorted Misha triumphantly setting down his glass. That's what it has to be. A slave race of humans that destroyed the Minotaur masters, then fell apart itself without the Minotaur science to support them. Urza chuckled. A perfect argument. Each point uses as proof another questionable point, which eventually requires you to believe what you are trying to prove in the first place. So, brother, why didn't these scavenger survivors create any art after the war? Mishra frowned slightly, considering. They haven't reached the point of gaining art, he said finally. So there is no art from the period. Except for the drawings in the desert, said Urza. Except for the drawings in the desert, agreed his brother. Except they aren't, you know, said Urza with a small smile. Misha shook his head, looking puzzled. Those are not drawings in the desert? Nothing natural could produce? Those are not art, interrupted Urza. Oh, the humanist figures might be, or they might simply be a recognition of other races that the Rhine had met. But all the lines, angles, and squiggles... Those are not art. They are instructions. Tokasia stared at Urza, intrigued as well. What had he discovered now? Urza rose from the table and left the tarp without saying another word. He returned with a large map of the area, which he shook open over the table. The other students moved quickly to save the remains of the broiled dessert hare and cantaloupe that would otherwise be covered by the sheet. The map showed the arc of ruins they had uncovered. Here are the locations of various Thrain outposts we have found, he said, jabbing a thin finger against the map. He followed from one to another, following the curve of wreckage. At each location, the collection of odd angles and lines seemed to point in one direction. From our second encampment, it points slightly west of due north. Producing a stylus, the blonde student sketched a practice line extending north. In the next one farther west, a majority of lines also indicate a particular direction. This one slightly more northerly than the first, he said, drawing another strong arrow straight line. And the next shows yet another line, almost due north in direction. The next points north and slightly east, and so on for each of the discovered sites so far. The stylus scratched out a number of new lines. Urza stood back from the map so the others could see. The ruins were in an arc, as everyone knew. 
but the lines Urza had sketched all pointed to one particular location, the center of her circle, of which the ruined mounds were points along the perimeter. The Thran were not an artistic people, said Urza, looking at his brother. Why then leave art in the desert? The answer is, they did not. They left instructions. Instructions about where the larger settlements were. We saw the figures, which we recognized, and ignored the lines, which we did not. But the lines are more important. Misha leaned over the map and scowled. Lines on paper, he snorted. You saw the arc and calculated the center, then looked for justification in the lines of the various mounds. So you disagree with my argument, brother? said Urza quietly. Misha smiled, the whiteness of his teeth sharp against the surrounding beard. But I love your argument, brother. It's perfect. Each point uses as proof another questionable point, which eventually requires you to believe what you are trying to prove in the first place. The argument I love. It's your conclusions I think are wrong. Urza rolled up his map slowly. I suppose that means you don't want to come along tomorrow when I find out. Misha started, and even Tokasia looked sharply at the elder brother. With your permission, mistress, I would like to take an ornithopter out to check this out, Urza said. Since my brother does not wish to accompany me, I can manage with one of the smaller craft. I did not say I wouldn't go, interrupted Misha sharply. In fact, I think I should go along, if only to keep you from seeing ruins that are not there. Urza nodded with a determined smile. Then he ducked from beneath the tarp and strode into the growing dusk. I have plans to make then, he called over his shoulder. Evening, all. In Urza's wake, the dinner table was silent. None of the other students wanted to comment on Urza's theory, and Tokase needed time to digest what the older brother had said. Tentatively, the conversation returned to more mundane matters. One student ventured that his area of the dig was producing some interesting discs marked with Thran numerals. Another mentioned that his work was being delayed by a junior student that declared every uprooted rock to be some artifact of the ancient race. That brought a small laugh from the others, and from Tokasia, a tale of one student a few years before who thought they should dig on mountaintops because if she were one of the Thran, that's where she leave the most valuable items. Misha sat quietly just beyond the firelight and stroked his stubbled beard. After a few minutes, he excused himself as well and left the table. He did not head for the course he shared with Urza, but rather turned down toward where the Palaji diggers made their camp. Tokasia noticed that the younger brother had a worried look on his face, but at the time, she paid little mind. That evening, after the dishes had been cleared, Tokasia worked on a Suchi leg assembly at her table. The design they had discovered in the almost complete specimen was different than either Urza or she had anticipated. It was almost, she thought, as if the legs were mounted backwards, the knees pointed toward the rear. Was this a design choice of the Thran, she wondered, or was this a model of their real appearance? A shadow appeared at the entrance of the tarp and she looked up suddenly as Amal entered. Ola Amal as he was known now, she reminded herself. His hair had turned gray, and rivulets along either side of his face. Lately, he had been complaining that his age was finally catching up with him. Tokasia knew he was a grandfather, and someday soon, he would leave the encampment. Tokasia would miss him, for he represented all she felt was admirable among the Falaji people. He was direct, forthright, and honest. Now, from the stern look on his face, Tokasia got the feeling she was about to get a messy dose of the last quality. I hear your young men are flying into the mountains on the morrow, he said, his desert accent still thick after all these years among the Argivians. How did... Tokasia started, then realized where Amal got his information. Misha would have asked him about the Ring of Ruins and the center point of the arc that Urza had located, and that news had obviously disturbed the elder Falaji. She nodded and motioned toward a camp chair, the old leader of the diggers, sat himself carefully down upon it, as if either him or the chair would break from the experience. 
Urza had some ideas about finding the wreckage of a large Thran settlement there. Old Amal looked at the worn, dusty carpeting beneath his feet. I do not think it's a good idea. The Falaji would frown on it. Tukasia knit her brow. Amal and his diggers had never expressed the idea of taboo land before. Indeed, in most of the tribal settings she had visited, the inhabitants were exceedingly proud to show off, if not actively trade, the Thran artifacts they had discovered. Not all the Falaji, Amal continued. He looked up quickly at her, as if he could read her thoughts in her eyes. Most of us are modern enough, are wise enough to know there is nothing in the mountains that is not in the desert. But there are those who are concerned about the spirits of the Thran, about their hearts. It is said their secret heart lies in the mountains, and we Falaji stood well clear of them. Amal, said Tokasia gently, you have never mentioned anything like this before, nor complained about our previous digs. That is because it is in the desert, and the desert belongs to all who can endure her, said Amal. The Falaji claim all this land, but we are willing to share it with others who respect it. The high mountains, however, the inner mountains themselves, are dangerous and are not for the great rook birds found there. We claim them as Falaji territory, but we do not visit them, nor do we recommend others do so. Argive claims those mountains as well, thought Tukasia, though she did not voice that opinion. Most of the Argivians were coastal people to begin with, and the broad expanses claimed by the noble factions were just lines on a map. If we are violating some taboo, she began. Amal held up a hand. Not a taboo exactly, mistress. A desire. A concern. Most of the diggers do not believe the stories of their grandmothers. But some do, and they may make things difficult. Hajar, my own assistant, believes in genies, ghouls, and the great dragons, the Mokfawas, which haunt the night. Amal, said Tokasia, smiling slightly. You know that standing in either brother's way, when he is determined to do something like this, is trying to turn aside the desert wind. They will go a-looking, and now that you have brought me your concern, I will go with them. My question for you is, should we find something and need to investigate further, will you come along as well to aid us? Old Amal sat upright, surprised. Tokasia had phrased the question just right, short of an insulting accusation, but direct enough to demand an answer. He stuttered for a moment, then turned stern again. I will be wherever you need me to be, he said coldly. I have learned more about the ancient days from working with you than I would in a lifetime of roaming the desert. We have too much earth, you and I, for ours to part ways over a grandmother's story. Takasi allowed herself a small grin, then turned a stern face to the old man. Good then, and find among your diggers who believes in a grandmother's stories and who does not. Discover who want to go on a dick site into the mountains, and who would remain. Do not challenge their pride or their courage, for then even those who think it is sacrilege will come along and feel the worse for it. I do not know if we will find anything, but if we do, we will investigate it. Amal nodded and rose to his feet. I did not think you would shy away from any challenge, Tokasia. You were like a man in that regard. Tokasia rose as well in respect. I did not think you would hide any information I needed to know from me. Thank you. Amal bowed and was gone. Tokasia shook her head as she watched a shadow join the others of the early evening. You are like a man, he had said, and meant it as a compliment. Typical desert dweller, after all these years. Yet he was still willing to defy old stories and give her a warning. Tokasia shook her head again and returned to the intricacies of the Suchi's lake mechanisms. They left the next morning, packing enough rations for a day and a half's flight out and back. Both of the young men accepted Tokasi's companionship without comment, and neither suggested that she not come along. She left Kantar, 
one of the more promising older students of that season, in charge while she was gone and told him not to argue with Amal or Hajar and to defer any disputes or major decisions until they returned. The ornithopter was the original one they had rebuilt years ago. Now the forward housing was enclosed by a larger wooden frame containing more than enough room for the three explorers and their supplies. The control levers remained in the middle of the housing, so either young men could handle them. The power of the stone was nearly inexhaustible, but human flesh was otherwise. After about four hours of flight, they would have to change operators. From the ground, the boards of the Great Desert was a low, undulating waste of blown dust marked with frequently rocky outcroppings. The region was barren, claimed by the coastal states with intermittent and vague borders far inland. The Falaji also claimed the waste, but they enforced that title only when seeking to shake down a few valuables from merchants and explorers in the desert. It seemed an inhospitable and barren world. From aloft, it was transformed. The rocky spires became sentinels, marking the passage of time as their shadows swept beneath them. The deep and uncrossable canyons turned into rainbows of colored granite and sandstone. The dry lakes were transformed into glittering patches of salt. The desert wind plucked at the ornithopter's control wires as they sailed effortlessly northward. With Urza at the controls, they flew straight across the sky, fixed on the course they had set. Occasionally, he called out to Mishra to check the coordinates. Inevitably, after checking with map and compass and taking a reading on the sun, the younger brother declared all was well. Each time Urza nodded, as if he would be surprised by any other result. When Mishra was piloting, they roamed more, still keeping to the general north and slightly westerly direction, but wandering back and forth along that line. If an interesting formation caught Mishra's eye, he steered toward it until Urza warned him they were off course. Then the younger brother sighed and brought the prow of the craft back on track. Occasionally, they had to re-engage the wings to regain lost altitude. Then Urza would check three times to make sure of their position. Once, they passed over another series of lines. They held no humanoid figures. Only spirals and angles juxtaposed against one another. Mishra shook with the sight as the older brother sketched, then nodded in confirmation. The angles pointed in the direction they should travel. At the end of the first day, they set down on a particular high mesa. Far from the protection of the stockade and its grapeshot catapults, they camped without a fire and slipped within the ornithopter's housing. Though Takasia had not had to man the control levers during the flight, she was warned by continual motion. Her head ached from the teeny rush of wind over the wires. She slept without dreams that evening and awoke stiff from the cramped quarters. The young men were already outside. Urza stretched to elongate his back, Mishra bending at the knees. After a cold breakfast, they set out again. The Thran Center, what Amal had referred to as the secret heart, could not be missed from the air, though it would not be reached easily from the ground. It was at the end of a long, winding canyon leading west, the trail of some ancient, long-dead river that had split the low mesa and cradled the ruins. And ruins they were, long processions of shattered building foundations and tumbled walls. Some of the ruins resembled manor houses from Argive. Others were akin to the onion dome temples of distant Tomakul. Still, others resembled nothing the three investigators had seen before. A framework of metal that supported nothing at all. A pile of discarded plates, each the size of a man, with serrated edges, or a tangle of what looked like blue metallic worms. Along the far canyon wall was what looked like a nest of broken bronze-colored spiders. The entire cavalcade of wreckage was buried beneath the sands carried out of the desert to the west. Do you doubt my calculations now? Brother, said Urza with a smile. Only a fool would doubt his own eyes. Well done, brother, said Mishra, his grin even wider. The Thran secret heart, murmured Tukasya. Mishra flinched slightly at the phrase and his smile faded, but Urza only nodded. The old Argivian word for secret was koilos, said Urza. Let that be the name of this hidden land. Circle around it, brother. We can best see the lay of the land from up here. Mishra nodded and was pulling on the controls when suddenly, a shadow passed over the ornithopter housing. It could have been a cloud, but for the fact that the desert sky was clear. 
Tokasia knew what it meant. She shouted at the same moment that Misha pitched the flying craft into a steep, banking dive. Urza was taken by surprise and let out a curse as he was flung against the inner side of the craft's housing. The rock dove through the space that moments ago had been occupied by the ornithopter. The bird was a huge representative of its race, a species reputed in old legends to snatch elephants from the plains for supper. Nearly three times the size of the ornithopter, its passage almost flipped the craft. The rock recovered as soon as it passed, gaining altitude quickly to make another dive at the craft. Why is it attacking? shouted Urza. We're large, and we're moving, replied Tokasia, screaming above the wind. It probably thinks we're another rock. Misha cursed and pulled both levers back as far as they would go. I don't think we could get above it. It's too fast for us. The rock was already over them again, making another dive. Misha re-engaged the wings and jinxed the craft to the right, but the rock was ready for the maneuver. It shifted slightly. There was a horrendous rip along the right side, and Tokasia saw that one of the wing struts had been ripped loose and was now fluttering in the wind. Better than the entire wing missing, thought Tokasia, but enough to cripple them. We can't outfly it, yelled Misha. I'm going to put us down. Over there, shouted Urza, pointing to the nest of broken metal spiders. I think there's a hole in the cliff wall. Won't make it, shouted Misha, pulling first one lever, then the other, trying to shake the rock off their tail. That's because you're flying like a bird, snapped Urza, shoving his brother aside and grabbing the control levers himself. Fly it like a machine, and we'll make it. Under Urza's control, the craft no longer zigzagged across the sky, but instead rocketed forward, swooping low over the wrecked landscape of Koilos. The rock, its simple avian brain expecting the craft to act like another flyer, expected it to dodge or to turn. The bird hesitated before pursuing. Its indecision was all the time that the three needed. Urza charged the cliff wall. Misha shouted in panic. Tokasia suddenly remembered a prayer she had learned as a child back in temple school when temples were still fashionable in Argot. She muttered the words softly as the far wall closed on them. Suddenly, Urza banked, bringing the prow of the craft up. He unlocked the mechanism that held the wings in position, and they automatically began to fold. Without the support, the craft plummeted. Again, the rock passed through the empty space that moments ago had housed the flyer. Urza dropped about 50 feet, then re-engaged the wing locks. The wings spread out immediately catching the desert air and slowing their fall. Still, they landed with an unceremonious bump on the sand. Had they landed on a rock, Tokasia had no doubt they would have broken the supporting struts, not to mention a few bones. Urza unlatched the wing locks, and the wings folded inward again, the damaged strut sticking out at an odd angle. Tokasia was already at the hatch, scanning the skies. It'll be back, she said, scanning the empty heavens. Let's not be here when it comes. Shouldn't take off again immediately anyway, said Urza. It might be waiting. Besides, we need to get the strut repaired. Let's make for the cavern entrance. Are you all right, brother? You should care, said Misha hotly as Tokasia turned at the hatch, afraid the young man had been hurt. I knew what I was doing. You didn't need to shove yourself into things. Urza blinked and scowled, his concern replaced with irritation. You're playing its game, flying like another rock. Of course it could outfly you that way. We only lost it because I made for... Shelter now. Argument later. Tokasia broke in sharply. And bring the torches and water. We might be here till dark. Neither brother replied, but neither argued with the old scholar. They clambered up the sandy bank behind her, breaking into a full-fledged run as the rock shadow passed over them. Tokasia was at the entrance first. She spun and scanned the heavens. Above them, the rock circled the cane of broken machinery and wrecked buildings. We'll have to bring the catapults with us next time, she said. Or figure out a way to mount them on an ornithopter, observed Mishra. We're going to be here for a while, said Urza. Shall we see where this passage goes? The cavern was an entranceway, 
The first 10 feet or so were natural rock, but after that, the sandstone gave way to smooth, polished granite. Tokasia ran her hands along the wall. It was constructed of separate blocks, invisible to the eye, detectable as individual stones only by touch. She whistled in a low note. Even among the Thran ruins she had excavated, there was no workmanship this precise. Behind her, Mishra lit the candlewood torches. The guttering flames smoked, but were better than no light at all. It was fortunate you saw this opening, said Tokasia to Urza. It was obvious, he returned, taking a torch from his brother. The wreckage of the buildings indicated roads, all of which radiated from the spot. This is the center of the Thran's supposed secret heart. The heart of the heart, said Tokasia. They spoke in whispers, as if their words might wait the long dead. Tokasia tried to raise her voice to a normal level, but the very emptiness of the space defeated her. Mishra examined the corridor before them. No creatures live here. Look at the dust. No footprints but our own. Urza held up his torch, the light flaring from the walls. And no bats either. Nothing has been here for a long time. Both young men looked at Tokasia. Right then, she said at last. Forward, but stay together and stick to the main path. There was little worry, for the few openings to either side were mere alcoves, and the cavern ran straight back into the hillside itself. They passed several sets of stairs and one or two large chambers, but nothing that would indicate any occupants, recent or otherwise. Dead crystalline plates dotted the ceiling above them, reflecting the light of the torches, but providing none of their own. The first alcoves were empty, but as they moved forward, Tokasia noticed some were filled with the remains of the Sioux chief constructs. These were rusted relics, little better than the ones they pulled from the dig. Several were nothing more than lower torsos, the upper halves lost to time, or perhaps to tomb robbers. Tokasia noticed with some satisfaction that the knees of the creatures did indeed bend backward. They had reached another staircase leading down into the darkness when they heard it, or rather, felt it. A deep throbbing came from within the surrounding stone, as if the earth were humming some unknowable ditty. Tokasi looked at the young men. They stared at each other, and the scholar was once again reminded of the silent communication they seemed to share. Then the brothers looked back at Tokasia and nodded. The three descended toward the noise. Ahead there was light, no more than a gray smudge against the blackness. It slowly refined itself, growing with each passing step. There were no more Suchi alcoves now, only straight walls leading toward the goal. They entered a chamber as large as any they passed through. The walls were natural, but supported with ancient steel and pillars of the same closely set blocks that Tokasia had seen earlier. The blocks were littered with machines. They were clearly of their own design, but with a difference. These appeared functional. Their cogs were greased and shiny. Their surfaces polished and mirror-like in their finish. It was, Tokasia thought, as if the Thran left only moments before. There were lights as well. Within this chamber, the ceiling plates were alight with their own ambient glow. Small balls of radiance danced around some of the machinery, orbiting them like small glowing moons. But this was all outdone by the large crystal in the center. It was a power stone, unmarred by age and unbroken by accident. Its facets were smooth and reflective, the edges sharp enough to cut the fabric of reality. It was about the size of two human fists. Yet it called to Takasha's mind the image of two hearts, for it pulsed with its own rhythm. A rainbow of colors played across it as it throbbed with life. The power stone was on a low platform flanked by mirrors which in turn were attached by wires to various machines around the perimeter. The power stone might be responsible for nothing more than the lights, the archaeologists noted, or it might be a fully operational machine with a greater purpose. Before the power stone's pedestal was a smooth bank of metal shaped like an oversized open book. Its pages were metal and glass, and the glass went like an evil eye in the night. Never had Tokasia seen a device like this one. She realized this might have come at the end of the cycle of Thrain development. Perhaps what they had been excavating so lovingly were nothing more than old scrapyards where the ancient and unwanted remnants of the Thran's past were discarded. 
She stared at the crystal itself, while the two young men moved ahead of her, drawn by its incandescent radiance. They stood before the open metal book, dwarfed by its size and magnificence. Their voices rattled against the walls of the cave, rebounding and gaining strength from the subliminal hum that surrounded them. It's beautiful, said Mishra. Look how it glows. It's intact, said Urza. Think what we can learn. These markings, said Mishra, spreading his hands over towards the metal book glyphs. They're so much like the Thran writings we've seen, but more detailed, more advanced. Don't touch anything, called Urza sharply, thrusting out his own hand to intercept his brothers. We don't know what they do. Tokasi could not tell which brother was responsible for what happened next. She could not tell which brother touched the particular glyph, or even if either did. Later, neither brother admitted to anything and even accused the other of causing the disaster. All Takasia could say was that Urza reached out to stop his brother. The glow intensified suddenly and hotly. There was an explosion, but one without sound, and the huge power stone, the heart of the heart of the secret heart, shattered in a blossom of light. 